Good morning, everybody. If you don't know me, my name is Steve Yates. I'm one of the pastors here at In Town. And this morning, we are going to embark on a new short series for this first part of the summer called Finding Jesus or Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, I want to define a couple of terms before Emily comes up and reads for us, because sometimes I think these are things that we can some of us take for granted, and then the other part of us who actually don't know what we're talking about at all, we just kind of sit there and hope we're going to figure it out by the end. And neither of those things is good, and we need to talk about these things. And so part of that is just what is the Old Testament? What are we talking about here? And then why are we, a church that believes in Jesus, talking about seeing him in that Old Testament as if it's something novel or something different? This is the Bible. If you can imagine a bookshelf, honestly, the colors are more important than the titles right now because what I want you to see is that the Bible is made up of 66 books. But in some respects, that's a little bit of a misnomer. It's not really made up of 66 books. It's made up of 66 documents. And these documents range from law or books of history, memoirs, but also poems and song lyrics. Um, there's some genealogical records in there. It's a lot of different things that are compiled together. We split this into 39 books or documents of the Old Testament and then 27 more of the New Testament because the Old Testament were the Hebrew scriptures. This was a document that had been fully compiled by the time Jesus was born um, and was readily available in multiple languages. Different people, even people from faraway countries would have studied these 39 books um, or documents and thought what, what truths could they have? What did they mean? And then we also recognize then as Christians, 27 additional documents that we say carry the story of Jesus and help us tie everything together. What we're going to do in this series, and the reason I wanted to show you this in particular, is because um, both in the Old and the New Testaments, the order of those books is, is grouped together by kind of the type of thing they are. Um, and so in the Old Testament, we see five different groupings. We see books of law and then books of history. We see books of wisdom and poetry, and then we see major prophets, and the only real difference between them and the minor prophets is that they're long. Um, and so uh, we're going to go over the next five weeks then and kind of delve into seeing Jesus in those Old Testament sections. I'm going to ask Emily to come up and read our passage for this morning, and then I'd like to unpack both that passage, but also more in general, why this whole seeing Jesus in those sections is so important. This morning's scripture lesson comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. 
I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, this is the word of the Lord. This is your word. This is your truth. This is about you. Help us understand what it means to know you more, how to apply it to our lives. Send us out, not the same. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, so we have an Old Testament, we have a New Testament, and the general shorthand being that the Old Testament were the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament are the stories about Jesus. So why are we talking about seeing Jesus in the Old Testament? Well, there are a couple of, of possibilities there. And I think there, there are some cultural stereotypes around those possibilities. That's kind of why I want to talk about this, that it could be easy to think of what we're doing here over the next few weeks and, and what kind of Christianity has done as sort of a, a large-scale Christian project of cultural appropriation, that we um, came up with this religion, or, or even if it's true, Jesus came up with this religion and then decided that he really liked these Old Testament scriptures that he was raised with, and so we sort of just sort of added them to our own canon. That might be one view that people would have. Or maybe the opposite. Maybe some people would say um, that we um, really wanted to, to leave the Jewishness of Christianity behind. And so the more we talk about Jesus in the Old Testament, maybe it means the less we're talking about the Jewishness of the Old Testament. That might be another perspective that some people could bring to the table. If nothing else, when we look at the Old Testament, what we do see in this group of documents is a, a common theme, that it's the story of a people which would become the nation of Israel and then that people interacting with God. That people hearing from God, that people being loved by God, God not giving up on those people regardless of a number of different failures. But it's pretty easy to see that from, from an analytical lens, from, from the end of the story. What I mean by that is this. If, if we, you know, maybe take a step back, what would it be like if we wrote an American Testament? Now, again, this is why it's really helpful to think of these as documents and not just books. If we had an American Testament, we might think of a collection of documents that if it looked like the Bible, it would include things like the text of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, but it also might have a complete transcription of Ken Burns' Civil War documentary in there, a little bit of the poetry of Walt Whitman, but also Rod Stewart's version of the Great American Songbook might get thrown in there, as well as a couple of really, really wonderful speeches by everyone ranging from you know Abraham Lincoln to Martin Luther King to Taylor Swift. I mean, really, we would have everything in there. And we laugh about that, but that is, in fact, the wide swath of different documents and authors that we have in the Old Testament. So from an analytical perspective, you kind of sort through these, these papers, these documents, these things, and from the end, you can see these themes pop up. 
But seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, instead of being an attempt at cultural appropriation or an attempt at erasing Jewishness or even simply another way of looking back at the Old Testament, actually is something very, very different. Because it's not actually a question of analysis. It's a question of intention. It's not looking back on these 39 books, we can see Jesus popping up from a time to time like a spiritual theological game of Where's Waldo? But rather from the very beginning, if Jesus is in these books, it's for a reason. The thesis of this entire series is this, that if Jesus is in the Old Testament, it is not by chance and it is not a literary device that's akin to sort of finding Easter eggs in movies. Instead, it's an act of cultivation that as God himself is interacting with his people and as those people are writing things down and God is doing kind of a supernatural work in that as well to guide these various individuals in writing these documents down. He's guiding which documents are considered to be sacred and holy and are not just having kind of truth with a small t, but truth with a large t. And as they get compiled together, God is doing the work of shaping the people of God, preparing them, putting longing into them, seeding them and seeding the soil so that when Jesus finally shows up, oh my, there's something different about this soil. There's something different about these people. There's something different about this tiny place in the Middle East that nonetheless has such supernatural charge to it. When we talk about seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, we are not talking about analyzing the Old Testament back to front. We are talking about walking with God through that journey of cultivation. That thesis is really important this morning as we look at the text in Deuteronomy that Emily just read because at its onset, just, just from first glance, Deuteronomy chapter 18 is not the most Jesus-like of passages in the Old Testament. It's not even probably in the top five or ten passages in the first five books of the Old Testament, which is what we're looking about at today, that sort of look like Jesus. Nobody would um, hear these words of Moses in this narrative and do a, you know, a, a double take and go, oh, was that a shadow of Jesus passing by? Nonetheless, of the passages in the Old Testament that are referred to in the New Testament, the early church was obsessed with this passage of Scripture. It's cited no less than three times in the book of Acts. It is referenced again in passing both by Jesus and by the writer of Hebrews. And it pops up again and again and again and again in the uh, works of the early church as well. 
there was something different about Deuteronomy 18. And so it's definitely worth us looking at this morning. So what's so special about it? Well, to understand what's special about it, let's understand what's going on. All right, first five books of the Bible have a number of different names. Um, The most common one is simply calling them the books of the law. Now, they're not all law books by any stretch of the imagination. Really, only about one and a half of them are. Um, But overall, they are looked at as sort of the framework for Israel. They include the origin stories, the book of Genesis. They include kind of the second origin story, the Exodus, whereby God's people, Jason referenced it already, are freed from slavery in Egypt by this incredible leader, Moses, and are led through the desert and given the Ten Commandments, given the law of God. Now, there's some great movies about those types of things. Much less so, there are not movies, or at least not times in those movies that are dwelt on with any sort of happiness as to what happens next, which is that after the soaring moments of Ten Commandments and plagues and great works of God, God's people turn chicken and run. Despite defeating the mighty power of Egypt, they see these lesser powers in this promised land that God has called them to, and they are too scared to trust God any further, and they run away. And so a good portion of those books of the law, these books of Moses, are the people of God wandering in the wilderness for 40 years until a new generation comes up who has the faith and the fortitude to listen to God and to go into the promised land and do what they were intended to do. This last book in these five books, the book of Deuteronomy, is a series of sermons by Moses right at the edge of that promised land given to this new generation. Moses is going to die. He's not going to go with them. So these are his parting charges to the people of God. And it's fascinating because some of it is just review. Um, Some of it is almost a a consolidation of the law of, of some of the books of Leviticus and Numbers. But even though these people are the, they're the yes men, they're the excited ones, they're the ones who want to go follow God, Moses nonetheless reminds them that they are the same as their fathers, and they are going to have periods of following God in faithfulness, and lots of periods where they are going to fail miserably. And he warns them about the ramifications of that before God. He reminds them of a time earlier here in chapter 18 where their fathers, at least, had heard from God audibly, that God spoke to his people. And rather than being so excited that despite being a people of slaves and what what the world would have seen as literally worthless dredges of society, they get to hear with favor from the king of the universe— Instead, they are afraid. They don't want to hear. They draw back. And so God, in his own mercy, sends them a prophet, Moses, to lead them and to listen from God and to convey God's words. Moses tells them that the nation that they're going to go go into and take over and the nations that are around that spot, well, they think of their gods and goddesses very differently. 
they think of their gods and goddesses as individual beings that they have to somehow elicit words out of. They have to, they have to pull them out of. They have to somehow get their attention. And, and as such, he describes a lot of really horrible practices, everything from bloodletting and witchcraft to child sacrifice, just horrendous, horrendous stuff. And so there's this juxtaposition between, on one hand, the, the nations of the world trying to get to the gods and Israel, who even in their brokenness, it's always going to come from God to them. And so Moses says, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only prophet. God is going to send you other prophets from among you. And those prophets will be his mouthpiece. And you will be judged not only by what you have heard from me, you will be judged by what you hear from them as well. Because if they are true prophets, they're going to be speaking with my voice. And then he moves on. And we start talking about other things. So why is the early church obsessed with this passage? And why does it pop up in a series about seeing Jesus in the Old Testament? The reason is this. In the book of Acts, chapter 3, Stephen will do this again right before he's stoned to death in chapter 7. Paul will do this again in chapter 26. They have been collecting breadcrumbs all of these different seeing Jesuses in the Old Testament. And one of the primary things they realize is that when Moses says, truth is always going to come top down. It's always going to come from God to you. It's not you trying to figure God out. It's not you coming up with ideas, throwing them to God and hoping he's okay with them. There's always going to be this, this conduit of truth the early church said, well, that never stopped, and it never stopped, and it never stopped, and it never stopped, and finally God comes down himself. They see Jesus in this line of communication from God to people. And not only do they see it as, as, as in this line, but that, again, in that vein of cultivation, this was the point. The people of God were always not just supposed to get used to hearing from God. The goal was that they would, they would have a first sense of looking to God. They would always be first inclined not to look within, not to figure things out for themselves, not to only go to God when it's the last option, when he's the vending machine genie that we need because we've exhausted every other medical hope or political hope or financial hope or whatever, and then we go to God. No, this would be primary number one, first on the list, that they would seek God in everything. And the writers of the early church said, well, if, if that condition happened, they would have seen and noticed the coming Savior. They would have recognized him. They would have rejoiced in the breadcrumbs. 
course, sadly, many of those in Acts are saying this out of a sense of, no, you missed it. Please don't miss it again. Peter talking in Acts chapter 3, Stephen talking in Acts chapter 7, Paul talking later in his defenses as well. You missed it, but there's, there's still hope. Please see that God is still for you. He still loves you. He still wants to get your attention. And praise God, some did. Some believed. And we're here today in that line. Jesus does something even more interesting with it, though. I'll turn our attention just for a minute to the book of John, John chapter 9. If the New Testament overall sees Jesus as this greater Moses, the book of Hebrews chapter 3 literally says that, and they see in this line of prophets, this line of truth coming down, Jesus finally being at the, the end, the, 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 the pinnacle of it, Then, then by nature, you would see Moses being very, very important as kind of the beginning or one of the beginning factors, but definitely not being more important than Jesus. But one of the observations Jesus makes that eventually also will filter down into the rest of the early church is that strangely, but maybe not strange because we see how it plays out and we know our own hearts. The people of God in Deuteronomy 18 largely do exactly the opposite of what Moses tells them to do. Moses says, hey, it was good that you listened to me. He, he doesn't have false humility. He acknowledges the truth of what he has said. But he says, you have followed me good. Now follow all of these other leaders who will come after you, who are going to show you ultimately Jesus. But by the time of Jesus and the early church, the, the Jewish culture of the day had largely done exactly the opposite. They had completely codified all of the Mosaic law beyond its original intent. And there was almost a, a supernatural, unnatural reverence for Moses and all of the structure that he represented. In fact, there were many, many people in Jesus' day who believed that the Messiah, this final individual who would come and save everyone, was actually being hindered from coming because there weren't enough people who were following the Mosaic law, the religious system, strongly enough that if they could somehow elicit a, enough spiritual brownie points, if they could be holy enough, then the land would be purified enough for the Messiah to come. It's almost the exact opposite concept of cultivation. Rather than you are not enough, and that's okay. Look to God. It does end up looking like 
can we get ourselves ready enough for God? And the reason I bring this up is because I still feel that pull very much today in my own soul. I don't know about you. It's very, it's very subtle, right? Because it isn't, it isn't a declaration like much of our culture says, which is that I am my own God. I think there's a lot of our culture, right, that says I am my own God. I am my own master. I am the captain of my own soul. I can do whatever I want. And my personal autonomy and authority is what matters. No, this is a little different because it, it acknowledges that God's there. It acknowledges that God is holy. It acknowledges that God is good and pure and that we want him to come. And yet there still is this sense that maybe he's not coming because of me. Or maybe he's not coming because of them. Or maybe he's not coming because of us. But regardless, we've got to fix this first. And I'm astounded by Jesus' reaction to this. As Jesus is trying to um, establish his own authority, his own identity, he literally says this to the Pharisees. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who will accuse you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In another place later, Jesus keeps going even further and says, when, when, when the people finally start begging him for more prophets, for more people, he says, look, at this point, guys, even if someone dies and comes back from the dead, you're still not going to believe. Why on earth would you need another prophet? It's wonderful foreshadowing. What I'm struck from in this passage and, and, and how I'm wondering how it applies to me and perhaps to you as well, very few of us are Jewish by heritage, maybe a few, but I think we do still have a sense of building our own religious structure, our own ability to get to God. I mean this without any political affiliation or individual affiliation of a person or um, a system by any means. But we think, oh, if only we can make our country better or we can make this next generation better or we can make this racial group better or we can make this whatever better, oh, then God will come. Revival will come. Then things will make sense. Then it will be okay. And the reality is this. For us, just as much as for the people in Moses' day, what Moses says is, no, it is not by your own hands. Your job is to look, and your job is to listen, and your job is to follow and believe. I wonder if today that same temptation to build works made of our own hands 
in order to fix everything blinds us to actually looking and listening and believing. So my question, friends, is this. Does your religion, and I will put everything and anything we want to in that box, does your religion keep you from seeing Jesus? Now, I realize even as I ask that, that there is a, there's an alternative cultural narrative that would amen that in a way I don't want. When I graduated from high school in 2004, it was also the first year of a tiny little company called The Facebook. Um, and uh, as I, it was originally a tool only on college campuses and for people of my age, there was uh, a trendy thing that went around once Facebook put a profile question of religious affiliation or spirituality on it. For a few months, they only gave you a couple of options in a drop-down menu, um, but very quickly people protested that because we hated being labeled unless we labeled ourselves, and so they let us fill in the blank. And oh, that was an interesting, interesting time to be alive. But many including myself at the time, uh, individuals, we uh, were really, really worried about putting Christian there or about putting a, a, a denominational label there either way. And so we came up with wonderful trendy names like Christ follower or Fisher of Men or you know something else trendy that we pulled off of a t-shirt or something. I think we, we may be overcorrected in our minds or maybe in a lot of other things as well of this belief that we we could get by spiritually without the church. That the church, that religion was keeping us from seeing Jesus. And so I want you to see what, not hear what I'm not saying. When I ask the question, does your religion keep you from seeing and hearing Jesus? What I am not saying is that we take a lighter to the box and we burn the thing down. But I am asking us collectively together as in town, but also individually as we build our value structures and as we put our efforts into good work in the world, that we make sure that the work is not the point. It's, it's fitting that Jim got to pray the way he did today and that we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of our church this year and the 50th anniversary of our denomination this year. I'm very blessed to be a pastor at a church that I believe can answer that question, at least at certain periods of our life, with a, we were not focused on building a building or building an institution or building a name for ourselves, but looking to Jesus. But that temptation is always going to be there. May we be a people who are only ever building an apparatus that allows us to receive truth from God and then and only then to act accordingly. So where are your marching orders coming from? Who's defining the religion you're building? 
And is that religion pointing you and I to Jesus? That was the intention of the Old Testament, to cultivate in you and me such a hunger and such a readiness to receive the truth of Jesus that there was nothing impeding it. And even today, it is worth a conversation to say, oh God, here is my stuff. Here is my everything. Here are all my religious backgrounds. Here are the things, my preferences, my personalities. Here is my church for me. Here is my job. Here is my calling. Here is my parenting. Here is my everything. So much of it is good, God. Thank you for it. Help me to see the things in it that I think are drawing me to you, but actually are blinding me from who you are. That is my prayer for us this morning. Let's pray it even now. Jesus, you've given us so many good gifts. The gift of yourself, more than anything, though, is something we should never be able to get over. God, I pray, even in my own life and heart, that you would continually be in the work of cleansing the dross, that you would be pulling out the fluff of my life that impedes a deep, whole, loving relationship with you. God, I thank you every day for the patience that you have when that process seems so much slower than it should and for the love that you have for me at every step of the way. Would you be with us even now as we enter into time with your table? We pray in your name. Amen.